Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is gold. So let's dive right in with fact number one. You have gold inside your body. Did you know that you, yes, you listening to this right now are really valuable? And before you click away and assume I've gone mental and I'm about to launch into some patronizing life coaching, don't worry. What I mean is you literally have gold inside you. If you're of average weight, around 70 kilograms, you most likely contain about 0.229 milligrams of gold, with your blood being made up of around 0.02% of the shiny stuff. That might not sound like much, but here's another way to picture it. 0.229 milligrams of gold would form a cube approximately 0.22 millimeters along each side. Wow. Now, before you go running off to your local gold blood donation centre, those don't exist, by the way, I'm afraid it's hardly enough for you to actually sell. Sorry about that. In fact, some weird person on the internet, probably one of those bored scientists that discovered you can cure hiccups by putting a finger up your bum. No, I'm not joking has calculated just how much blood you'd need to make a sale. And unlike the hiccup cure, try that one later if you like, this is a little out of reach. For anyone who's ever donated blood, you will know you can't just wander in every day, make your donation and leave. That's because after donating a pint of blood, that's about half a litre, your body needs four to six weeks to fully recover. So in order to gather enough bloody gold that someone would actually want to buy it, you'd need to have 40,000 people donate their blood at the same time with the goal of sharing the profits around. But even then, there wouldn't be much to go around. The amount of gold you could extract from the blood of 40,000 people would equate to just 28 grams or eight ounces. When sold, that would give you around £1,151. Divide that up amongst all the donors, and they'd be left with three pence each. So it's probably not worth the effort. But still kind of cool. Besides, you might want to think twice about donating your bodily gold. Not that you can. Because it might be more valuable for you personally than anything money can give you. It's been shown that gold plays a vital role in your body, helping to maintain joints and facilitates the transmission of electrical signals throughout the body. Which sounds bloody important if you ask me. But it's not just natural gold found within you that's beneficial to your health. For years, humans have used gold to help treat a variety of illnesses and disease and they're only becoming more effective over time, with some really exciting results. One of these was the use of gold therapy, which was developed in the 1920s. 
and featured the use of an injection filled with gold. I shit you not. This treatment, developed for rheumatoid arthritis, contained a compound called sodium orpheumalate, which also contained gold. And when injected, this drug dampened down the activity of the immune system, reducing the risk of long-term joint damage. But due to its tendency to give the user some undesirable side effects, which unfortunately didn't include being able to turn things into gold, there goes my King Midas Halloween costume out the window. These injections are rarely used today. Oh well. But fast forward to more recent times, and gold is being used in a wide variety of futuristic experimental treatments, from cancer to antiviral medicine. In an age of antimicrobial resistance, this latter usage is extremely exciting and could potentially save all of humanity, which is really quite important. Scientists in Switzerland have pioneered the use of gold nanoparticles as a new generation of broad-spectrum antiviral drugs. These shiny gold nanoparticles are designed to attract unwitting viruses into the body, tricking them into binding with the gold nanoparticles before swiftly destroying them like a high-maintenance gold digger. Actually, the more I think about it, that's exactly like my ex. These gold antiviral nanoparticles have the potential to cure many deadly viruses that are currently untreatable, such as HIV and Ebola. Isn't that incredible? Next up, moments from history. Where we dive into one particularly odd moment from the past. This episode, The Man Who Sold the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower wasn't always the gleaming beacon of Parisian culture that we know it as today. Far from the picture postcard icon of the 21st century. In 1925, the Eiffel Tower was becoming extremely run down and was developing into an eyesore for the local Parisian residents and tourists alike. Originally built in 1889 for the Paris World's Fair, it was meant to be dismantled in 1909, and so the longevity of it wasn't really considered upon its initial construction. After all, it was only supposed to be up for a couple of decades. But then broke the First World War, and it turned out the Eiffel Tower was really rather handy as a radio tower to listen in on those pesky Germans. And so, there it remained. Where it began to rust and decay and was in desperate need of repair. Back to 1925. Something needed to be done for this rusting, unwanted erection, and it was all anyone in the city could talk about. The state was having difficulty finding money to repair it, and there were even rumours about the whole thing being demolished. 
And this is where our protagonist of the story saunters in. Now, Count Victor Lustig was an interesting character to say the least. Originally from Austria-Hungary, Lustig travelled across Europe and America, tricking people out of their hard-earned cash along the way. The 1920s was infested with con artists, with smooth-talking swindlers such as Charles Ponzi, the infamous creator of the Ponzi scheme, and Count Victor Lustig, knocking about all over the place, Everyone was out to get their hands on your money and pull the rug from under your feet. But he was a professional and a gentleman who, according to a crime magazine, yes, that's a thing, was a man who, quote-unquote, society took by one hand, the underworld by the other. <laughs> a flesh and blood Jekyll Hyde. To the naive public, he was a man who seemed rather trustworthy, and he took full advantage of that. Hearing rumours that the Eiffel Tower could soon be torn down, Lustig's ears pricked up and his eyes twinkled. For he had just thought of the perfect con. He had a professional forger create fake government stationery and gathered together six scrap metal dealers at a confidential meeting in one of Paris's most prestigious hotels, the Hotel de Crillon. Can you see where I'm going with this? Under the guise of a government employee, Lustig told the scrap dealers that, due to the overwhelming expense of maintaining the Eiffel Tower, the city wanted to sell it for scrap metal. Although today this would raise a few eyebrows and inspire a swift Google search, in 1925 Google wasn't invented yet, and this wasn't much of a surprise to the scrap dealers, considering all the rumours flying around town so they just took him at his word. He even had government stationery! Lustig even took the men on a limousine tour around the Eiffel Tower for added effect. One of the scrap dealers, a Mr. André Poisson, fell for the grand charade that Lustig had cleverly curated. I mean, if your name is literally Mr. Fish, you're going to be rather gullible, aren't you? Poisson made a bid for the tower and later handed Lustig a briefcase full of cash. I can only imagine Lustig's face when he opened the briefcase. He must have thought it was too good to be true. It's truly amazing what some fancy stationery can get you. Of course, Lustig then swiftly hopped on a train to Vienna. Never to be seen by Mr. Fish again. So, did the recently conned Mr. Poisson go to the police after he realised he'd bought absolutely nothing? 
Not even a ticket to view the damn thing. Nope, he was far too embarrassed, so he said nothing to anyone. Probably a good move that there, Mr. Fish. Otherwise, you might have ended up in a podcast years later, being made fun of. I also wonder what was the moment when the penny dropped for poor Mr. Poisson, and he realised he hadn't in fact bought the Eiffel Tower, as he was promised. Perhaps he turned up with a wrecking ball and was politely... Wait, no, not politely. It's the French. And he was told to F off. Unbelievably, no more than a month later, Lustig returned to Paris and was once again in a hotel with six more scrap dealers. And yes, for a second time, he managed to fraudulently sell the Eiffel Tower. This time the police were informed, but by that point Lustig had already fled. Giving Eiffel Tower sales a break, five years later Lustig went into the counterfeit note business, because why not? It's obviously the natural progression of things. And he was pretty good at it too, a little too good. So good in fact that he managed to circulate so many thousands of dollars, nicknamed Lustig Money, into the country, that it threatens to shake the confidence of the American economy. But it would all soon come crashing down, as it always does with these things. How else would we find out about all this cool shit? Lustig's mistress soon learnt that he was cheating on her and decided to take her revenge. And she did what every scorned ex wished they could do. She placed a not-so-anonymous phone call to the federal authorities, reporting all the wrongdoings of Lustig. He was sentenced and spent the rest of his life in the infamous Alcatraz, where he would later die from pneumonia. On his death certificate, the man who sold the Eiffel Tower twice and got away with it for a while was sadly listed as an apprentice salesman. I think he was a little better than an apprentice, if you ask me. Now, we'll take a short break whilst you absorb all that information, and soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. You can have a fear of gold. The next time you're in an antique jewellery store and you hear a loud scream, don't be too quick to assume someone had gotten a little frightened by the high prices, because they might be suffering from the condition orophobia. For those of you unfamiliar with Latin, this translates to a fear of gold. As unbelievable as this condition sounds, for the sufferer, it's a very real experience, and it can be debilitating. As with any phobia, symptoms can range from mild to severe. And for those with orophobia, exposure to gold can result in sweating, nausea, and anxiety, all the way to chest pains, panic attacks, and the fear of dying. But when you first think about it, like I did, you might assume that being scared of gold wouldn't really get in the way of daily life too often. Unless you're obscenely wealthy or a pirate. Arr! 
Although come to think of it, an orophobic pirate sounds like an amazing idea for a film. You heard it here first, folks. But for the average person, taking time out of your day to clean your collection of gold bars or scrub your golden toilet isn't a common concern, so you might be forgiven for thinking it's a bit of a non-issue. Well, I'm here to tell you you're completely wrong. By taking you through some obstacles you would face if you did suffer from orophobia. First of all, going on the internet, watching TV, or even reading a newspaper wouldn't be safe. When even a picture of a gold bar can be too much for some orophobia sufferers. Just think how many times per day do you see the current price of gold? A film or TV series involving gold? An advert trying to sell you a limited edition gold coin? And worst of all, people. Yes, you heard me right, people. And no, I'm not talking about some weird people made out of gold, which you've just happened to miss whilst walking about. But rather something that we humans like to decorate ourselves with an awful amount. Jewellery, specifically of the golden variety. Whether it be a delicate gold ring, necklace, watch, a pair of earrings, bracelets, chain, gold tooth, we're all dripping in gold. And for someone severely afraid of it, this poses a massive issue. Not just for online media, but on the day-to-day -day streets as well. Imagine being too scared to walk down the street because someone might walk by you with a wedding ring on. It would certainly make proposing to an orophobic that little bit trickier. Take it from me, the last thing you want when you're proposing to your soon-to-be wife is her screaming and running away from you. It's rather embarrassing. And you couldn't have a church wedding either. Places of worship tend to have a liking for gold ornaments. Of course, jewellery shops and antique stores are also a big no-no for orophobics. I would probably also say a trip to Dubai is out. All of these things and more leaves the person suffering with not a lot of choice but to stay home and isolate themselves which can result in severe depression, drastically affecting their quality of life. But how exactly does someone become afraid of gold in the first place? As with most phobias, it develops through a mix of genetics and past traumatic experiences. In the case of orophobia, it can be the fact that some people will kill to get hold of gold. It can be a fear of greed and the general negativity in which gold can create in some people's lives. Experiencing these as one grows up can trigger a phobia of gold for the rest of that person's life. And here's me thinking it's just harmless bling. Fact number three. Fool's gold might not be so foolish. As a child or adult, if you've ever been to a fun fair, or one of those crystal shops that stink of incense and B.O. 
you've most likely come across something called fool's gold. You most likely showed the stuff off to your mates exclaiming that you found a golden nugget and that you're going to sell it and become a millionaire, secretly wondering if you could actually sell it to some unsuspecting punter for a small fortune. No? Just me then. Coming to the sad conclusion that it probably wasn't gold, you most likely wondered what the heck you'd actually bought, but never cared enough to find out for yourself. Well, you'll be pleased to know that's where I step in. You're welcome. Fool's gold is actually the mineral pyrite in disguise, but was given the name of Fool's gold because of a couple of reasons. Firstly, the stuff looks remarkably similar to actual gold, obviously. And secondly, during the California gold rush in the 1840s, inexperienced gold prospectors looking to dig themselves a quick book were fooled by the worthless pyrite. One poor sod in the 16th century, taken in by the glittering pyrite, was English privateer and explorer Sir Martin Frobisher. On his return to England from Baffin Island in Canada, he brought back with him over a thousand tons of ore, which he thought contained a literal gold mine. Unfortunately, when he presented his finds to Queen Elizabeth in 1578, he was left red-faced, as it turned out that he'd brought back a thousand tons of pyrite. How embarrassing. Off with his head. Anyway, these pissed-off panning prospectors might have actually been ahead of their time, though, as years later, in the 1980s, scientists discovered that the once goldless pyrite might contain gold after all. Mum, where's my fool's gold I bought when I was six? This is due to the relatively new discovery that fool's gold contains a previously unrecognised third type of gold, lurking within the pyrite. Once referred to as invisible gold, this newly discovered type of gold is notoriously hard to extract, but not impossible. When pyrite forms under extreme pressure or temperature, it creates little imperfections within its structure that become coated with these invisible gold atoms. So, in a way, the less perfect the pyrite is, the more likely there is to be gold in it. So instead of saying to someone that beauty is often found within, perhaps you could just cut to the chase and call them a pile of imperfect pyrite. Unfortunately, this invisible gold isn't as valuable as free gold, which is much easier to extract. But the odds of your gold watch or jewellery being made out of invisible gold, extracted from pyrite, isn't out of the realms of possibility. It's just not very green. You see, in order to extract the invisible gold from pyrite, it requires the use of large reactors, which in turn require enormous amounts of energy to run. So as it currently stands, invisible gold just isn't eco-friendly enough or economically viable. 
But this all might be about to change. Scientists believe that through the use of something called bioleaching, which sounds like a medieval medical cure, we could easier extract these gold particles from pyrite, which could lead to a more energy efficient way of producing gold. What's bioleaching, you might ask? That's the process of using bacteria to attack and break down the mineral, releasing the gold. Which sounds absolutely terrifying if you ask me. I'm not sure I'd want a gold tooth which has been munched away at by bacteria, but each to his own. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fact from my lovely listeners and shout it out at the end of my next episode.